0: Hi, everyone. It's Bud, and thanks for checking out the latest episode of my new podcast, Before the Cheering Started, all about the journey to success, the early years, when that success was by no means guaranteed. Paul Reiser has been making me laugh for 40 years. On stage is a wonderful stand-up, on TV with shows like Mad About You, and in the movies. There's no sense me saying that I'm an unbiased journalist when it comes to Paul Reiser, His first film, the great ensemble piece Diner from 1982, is one of my top three films of all time. A film whose lines my friends and I quote on a disturbingly frequent basis. A movie that has significantly influenced future films and TV shows where the conversation is the thing. So it was a real treat to have a conversation with Paul about his early years, his before the cheering started years. Growing up in Manhattan, going to college in upstate New York, and then his own graduate school, New York's Comedy Clubs. I read a recent article with you, an interview with you, in which you referenced a great old bit by the great comedian Robert Klein about graffiti in New York. (laughs) And aside from us having a mutual love of Robert Klein, when you're growing up in New York, when you see comics like that and others, is there some sense of... Oh, I could do that. Uh,
1: you know, I, 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 I would I would adjust that. I don't know that I thought I can do that. I thought I wanted to do that. And I remember uh, really in high school with my uh, my buddy Billy Grunfess, who I know is a friend of yours, we were in high school together, and uh, we were the, the two idiots who would go see comics. Everybody else was, you know, seeing Led Zeppelin at the garden, and then we're seeing Robert Klein at, uh, wasn't even the bottom line. It was like the other end. The bitter like, end? Bitter end, or
0: the other, the both. There's an other end and a bit of bitter end, and the other end.
1: end. It was was a small. It was like you know. I'm I'm thinking now, maybe 150, 200 seats, and um, seeing Robert Klein, the seeing George Carlin there. So that would have had to been before George hit. So I'm going to guess that was like 70 or 71, and uh, because by 72 he was playing, you know, big theaters, Um, and that was very much this thing of sort of like staring at the sun and going. Wow. That seems the coolest thing. You know, it's funny. I did a um, Robert Klein. This was a bit of a shocker to me, but he, he just turned 80. yeah. And uh, so I was invited to send a little, you know, a little video and some recollections of Robert. And, and I was surprised literally while I was just recording this thing in the, in you know, in, in an affectionate little happy birthday and what Robert meant to me. I was remembering very clearly, and it might not be true, but it's what mm-hmm. I remember, sitting in the back row of, the, of this little club in the village seeing Robert, and it was right near the, I don't even want to say dressing room because those clubs don't have dressing rooms, they just have like a, you know, the storage room where you put your coat on. And he was standing right in the back and right, you know, during the end of the opening act, I don't remember who that was, sat down next to me, and you know, I going, oh, this is the coolest thing. And I watched him go up, and I, re- I remembered something that he had no recollection of, but I remembered he walked in, you know, like right before showtime with his girlfriend or wife at the time, and they had matching jackets They were very like red, white, and blue, suede, American flag, but cool hippie jackets. I'm thinking, wow, I guess when you're a comedian, you have a good-looking girlfriend and you wear matching suede jackets. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, sign me up for that. That looks cool. And just you know, I thought this—it's something that went deep into my uh, DNA there, of clubs and uh, everything about it appealed to me. And uh, it wasn't until probably only three or four years later before I first tried it. Yeah, the first time I went on stage, I was a freshman in college, between freshman and sophomore year. So that wasn't couldn't have been more than three or four years later. And that's back in the city. Yeah, at Catch a Rising Star on audition night in '70 four. But I still, you know, didn't quite imagine that I would be able to I don't know. I, I didn't I didn't think I couldn't do it. I just thought, well, I don't know, let's jump in here and just start swimming.
0: So is there a conversation at home with your folks like, uh what are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm gonna go up and, you know, try stand-up comedy up at Catch a Rising Star. Yeah, I don't think they
1: care much because they didn't they didn't see it as, you know, this is gonna be anything serious. I was like, all right, good for you. You know, you're doing something, you know, fun and whatever. Um, but what I do remember vividly is I had done it one time between freshman and stuff. I went on audition night one time, did five minutes of horrible stuff, some of which was actually stuff that Billy and I used to do in a lunchroom in high school. And, uh, <laughs> I did. And, uh, by the way, to finish that, sorry, I did it one time for five minutes at like one in the morning, you know, and it was not an auspicious, uh, uh, debut but I remember going back to college in the fall upstate New York and you know you're catching up hey what'd you do this summer I, uh, I was a comedian <laughs> and I just saying it. I had been all of it, uh, five minutes I had been a comedian but it just felt like I think I I like saying it
0: yeah and like others who are like yeah I worked at a an accounting firm, or I, yeah, yeah that's great. Yeah, I, or,
1: you know, some of the cool you kids. Know, I backpacked
0: across the country,
1: I, you know, I hiked through Europe. It's like, all right, I did five minutes. But it was so defining for me, and it, it totally obliterated whatever else I did with every other hour of the day <laughs> it, for that summer break. That was it for me. And the second, the following year, I think I went up twice, and then maybe the third year a couple of more times, and by my senior year now i'm out of college and i just you just sort of stayed and and by that point i had a vague commitment to to at least try and you know to see and then there's never a point where you go they tell you you're never going to be good uh you should leave now there's no there's no cutoff. you just sort of you know sort of people fall off by their own or uh,
0: wear and tear so there's no official proclamation from the comedy gods like okay now no, you're accepted you're not accepted
1: there well there are you know it's funny there are little uh advances and i remember two of them really clearly i remember so funny to say this now but i remember at the time rick newman who was the owner of the catcher of catarizing Star. And he wasn't always involved in everybody and tapping everybody. But I remember one time I had done, I don't know, audition night a few times. And he I got the message, uh, Rick said, you can hang out at the bar now. <laughs> wow, look at me. I am allowed to hang out at the bar. There was absolutely no promise that you'll get on right. or you have a future. Just... We're not throwing you out. Okay, well, I, and the other thing, and my friend Carol Leifer just reminded me of this the other day, last week. she had, She's the keeper of, uh, of the chronology. It was like September 5th or something. It was the day that three of us passed auditions. and We did officially at the comic strip, which was four blocks away from, the cat, from Catch from Rising Star strip was the newer club, and it was basically built to catch the overflow of audience that would be not allowed into catch a rising star. three enterprising saloon owners went, you know, it looks like there's a gold mine here. They're not letting people into catch. What if we open a club? And so, and at the time, Jerry Seinfeld was had been there a year, so he was the MC. And the way it was structured then, the MCs were really the ones who would tap you and and I think even make the the, pro, the, the you know, the lineup for the night. But I remember Jerry was, the, and he said there was three of us passed. It was Rich Hall and Carol Leifer and myself all passed on the same night. And passing just means like, all right, now we'll hang out at the bar and we will put you on maybe, you know, two times a week, three times a week, and it'll be late. It'll be
0: two in the morning. But,
1: uh, you know, that was getting accepted into college school, into comedy school.
0: Is there growing up in uh, Stuyvesant town in Manhattan in New York City is there are there friends or even family that you can recall you doing bits with and thinking oh I can make them laugh that's uh, that's pretty that's pretty good no
1: no i mean i think i was you know i, I guess i was funny in in school uh you know, it was it was you know. It's funny you mentioned right up front that you worked with my buddy uh, Billy Grunfest on radio, and he and I was sort of uh, found each other from day one of high school. We were in the same homeroom class, and we both made each other laugh, and we both had a love of comics and 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 um, a knowledge. You know, we both had this banked knowledge of. Albums and comics and and some of very abstract, you know. There was the obvious ones. Well, everyone's listening to George Carlin, but not everybody was listening to, uh, you know, Pat Cooper right. or or Louis Nye Records or David Fry Records. And um, so we even did a thing. There was in the sophomore or junior year of high school. They initiated a program right before Easter break, spring break, where what they call it. I do what they call it. Uh, it was like a master class, basically. I can't remember what it was called. But basically, kids, you whatever hobby or thing you liked, had a passion for, you could uh, start a class. And, you know, you'd have to be approved by the school. You know, it couldn't be bomb throwing. But, uh, you know, so people, you know, whether it was chess or, or hockey, whatever, and Billy and I started a comedy class. And the first year, we had, I don't know, 14 other idiots, and we'd sit and we'd listen to – records, but we had made a curriculum. I mean, and Billy was very um, uh, official about it. You know, we sort of broke it up into, well, there's, here's these kind of comics and there were storytellers, there were joke tellers, there were more conventional. And, and it was sort of us creating our own education or furthering our own
0: education about comedy. Uh, Growing up at home and growing up in that area of Stuyvesant Town, uh, how can you describe it for, for people who never experienced that and who don't know that part of New York City? Did you grow up in Stuyvesant Town? I, I didn't, oh. but I know, certainly know of it and have been there.
1: Stuyvesant Town is a, is a housing project. I mean, it's a, and, and sometimes the word project sounds uh, a little bit low scale, but it was actually you know comfortable middle class, um, very designed, I don't know, four block by six block area. Um, that had grass, and it had you know had little play playgrounds, and it had it was curated, and it was kind of nice, pleasant. And um, each playground had its own sort of vibe. That was the basketball play- the playground. That was the that was the you know hang out with girls and smoke a cigarette playground. That one is the little kitty pro- playground. Um, and you know it was huge. I mean, it must have been I'm mean, going to say forty thousand people. Is that possible? it was big, and I remember when my when I had kids and they were like three and five, I took them to see where I grew up. And he went, "This was all yours." Like, no, 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 no. What is that <laughs> window? That window, and not the whole. They had never seen a building. They, they grew up in L.A. They went, "What's the the whole building is yours?" Yes, Daddy was doing very well. Yeah, yeah, Grandma. yeah. Um, but you know, and we walked. I walked to Stuyvesant High School, which was uh, still is a you know very reputable. Uh, school and I happen to live, you know, walking distance. So, um, and a
0: well-known home of uh, future stand-up comics, right?
1: Well, I don't know who else was there. I, and there's a lot of famous people. I actually found. I was. We moved last year, so we, we were here in L.A. and we were cleaning out the basement, and I came across boxes of stuff that I hadn't looked at in 40 years. That just had, I kept moving every time I moved. Yeah. So, literally, stuff that moved from my where i grew up in my parents apartment to my own first apartment to california just never looked at this crap and, <laughs> and then i opened it up and it was it was like a time capsule i found uh, a stuyvesant high school um newspaper student-run newspaper and the political column was written by david axelrod wow who was obama's <laughs> uh, ch- not chief of staff, obama's chief advisor and and you go, yeah, you take take away that long hair. Yeah, I can see the face. And it was amazing because – and I actually sent it to him and I heard back from him. He was a year older than me. But it was already really political and left-leaning, and it was about – I don't remember if it was about unions or teachers or the war or Vietnam, but it was like, all right, that guy's going to grow up to be David Axelrod. Yeah. And also um, Attorney General Eric Holder went to Stuyvesant yeah. several years before me. He was gone when I was there. Um, yeah, they turned out some uh, some good people. Tim Robbins went there. Who else went there?
0: So when you is this going
1: to do a fundraiser for Stuyvesant? Absolutely,
0: absolutely. This is all. Yeah, I've got you. We're all set. Thanks a lot. We'll take. We're good uh, now. Uh, <laughs> so when you head off to school, college in upstate New York, is there a, like a, a thought like, okay, here's what's going to be for me, or is it still kind of up in the air what your future is going to be?
1: You know, it's funny because of those when. Uh, the clap. Well, I can't can't recall what they were called the program. But Anyway, when we did those comedy classes, right. we were trying to get guest lecturers, and so I remember calling. You know, I'm 15 sixteen. <laughs> and I'm calling the improv. Uh, is David Brenner there? <laughs> uh, is Robert Klein? There? Actually, yeah, I think I once called and looking for somebody, and David Brenner answered the phone. And I went, "Oh, you? Would you like?" And of course, no. We're not gonna wanna, they're not going to want to. They're not going to perform at a high school. I do remember asking George Carlin. Georgia. Uh, yeah. Or, or somehow getting a message to him. And, and he was really clear. He said, you know, I perform at colleges, but high schools, no, you know, there's there's something magical happens between high school and college that they're not ready. <laughs> well, yeah, of course not. You can't play at high school.
0: I believe it's called um, payment.
1: It's called payment. No, it's also called their children. You yeah, know, you're yeah. playing a 12-year-old. It's not like
0: playing a hip, you know, Nineteen-year-olds. Yeah, I guess so, Seven words you can't say on television. Probably not great for the twelve.
1: Yeah, but even it's different, and you know they'd be laughing for a different reason, right? But my my point being that I I knew where these clubs were, and I knew where these little hotbeds of it was really just the improv because a Rising Star I don't think had opened yet. But by the time I got to college, I didn't have a plan at all. But there was uh, in the in those few years the world sort of started to form where it was clear there are these places, these comedy clubs, from which people get, quote, discovered and end up on your TV. So there's Freddie Prinze. Well, he was just in that club, then he got spotted, and he was on a Tonight Show, now he's Chico and the Man. David Brenner started there. Robert Klein started there. Gabe Kaplan. Jimmy Walker. So so suddenly there was a... a program you know it's like there was a, a a course, basically you know if you go here, there were some steps to follow, and i I've never been somebody that can really chart my own course, but if you tell me where to go and where to sign up i if if it appeals to me, i 'll go do that so by that point, it was already clear, go to these clubs, they have a thing called audition night, and you what do you do? You wait online and you'll get a number, and if you're in a low number, you'll get on um and just see what happens. And that's really what I did. It wasn't, it wasn't a plan per se. It was just a step that was available, but absent that step, absent those clubs, I don't think I could have forged my own path. I, 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 you know, I don't know how people do
0: that. And is there do you recall is there a specific time at home where you sit down with your folks and say, even maybe after graduation from SUNY Binghamton, no, this is what I'm going to do.
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, I think they were all happy, you know, for me to go and enjoy yourself. And isn't that fun? Oh, how'd you do? Oh, I got laughs and blah, blah, blah. And after college, I mean, it was always presumed. My dad had a pretty successful business that he was always hoping I would go into. And it was a food wholesaling business. And, you know, I would work there in my summers. And, and, uh, and after college, I would still work there. And then at night, I'd go into the clubs and I was really burning candle at both ends. It was not, I was failing sort of at both. And, uh, and there was a point of a year, you know, and he, I think in my, my, my father's uh, take was, look, take a year, get this craziness out of your system and then cut the bullshit and come to work. Okay. <laughs> so I spent a year going about, and the year was up and I kept pushing it. Well, maybe 13 months. Cause I, uh, you know, maybe one more month. And then I think, cause I think the breakthrough and then I just, I sort of had a, I traveled a bit. I, just, I went out. Of, I was alone for a while, and I got some deep thinking, and I and I just had this moment of clarity realizing that's what I want to do. And if I don't do it, I'm going to forever regret it because I was in it enough to know, like, well, there's my friend Larry Miller, and there's my friend Jerry Seinfeld, and there's my friend, you know, all these guys who were on the road, on their way. I going, I don't want to be a guy at home, you know, with a job I don't love pointing to the TV and telling my wife and kids, oh, I used to know him. It's like, no, yeah. I want to be in that world. I want to do that. I don't want to just be a guy who's uh, just in the audience, though I love being in the audience. So there it, it, it was a moment, and I remember having a really emotional uh, sit-down with my dad, who really couldn't make heads or tails of it. He was like, "Why? what? You want to what? You want to hang out? and You're not going to make money. And, you know, and and I had to explain it to him in terms he understood, because he had this very successful business that he didn't make money at for years. It was just, you know, getting it off the ground. It took a long time. And I had to explain it to him like that. I said, I'm not, you know, I'm not crazy. I'm not thinking I'm going to be... A big star tomorrow. I'm gonna to do the hard work and I'm gonna put in the hours and I'm gonna hope for this. And at some point, and I realize this now with my own children's league, like, at some point you have no move other than, All right, God bless you. I love you. Good luck. I hope everything works out. Because, you know, it's not it wasn't forced labor.
0: Were, so, were, you, were you confident at it? Were you confident? Uh, or were there are there are there moments in between graduation and diner? Are there moments of I don't know. No,
1: no, no. First of all, because it crazily happened pretty quickly. You know, I think it was 1979, spring of 79. I moved into the city and I made my break and I said, I'm just going to do this. And that was all icing. I'm like, well, this is great. I have my own apartment in New York and I'm going to the clubs at night and I'm I'm getting better and I'm getting more time. So that was happening. And I, I didn't, I wasn't looking for a quick payoff or a quick, and I wouldn't have wanted. It's like, you're a star. Like, wait a second. I don't have any skill in this yet. Right. We discovered you. Don't discover me. I'm not good yet. <laughs> um, but it was really early, 81, two years into it. I stum- Or 80, I stumbled into 81. I stumbled into the office where they were casting Diner. And next thing you know, I'm making Diner. And 82, Diner comes out. And because of Diner, I get on The Tonight Show. So it was really three years from jumping in to emerging with uh, the, you know, mere beginning skeleton of a career. You went um, to the
0: diner audition with a friend who was supposed to yeah, audition, my buddy, right?
1: Michael Hampton Kane. He, he was auditioning. I was just hanging out with him. We were going to go for lunch afterwards. And uh, The casting director thought I was sitting there or whatever, thought that I might have, a, I, knowing nothing. It's kind of crazy if I think about this. I mean, I've told this story so many times that I think it's really crazy that she went, hey, who's this kid? He might be just what Barry Levinson is looking for. <laughs> you know, there's no reason to think that. But this is also Barry um,
0: Levinson, before Barry Levinson was Barry Levinson. So maybe he's yes, more he willing was, to take a chance.
1: He, he was Kitty Carlin. Yeah, that's that right. Uh, he, he was, uh, yeah, that was his first, he was a successful TV writer and performer, but, you know, not known at all. But that was his first uh, directing. I think it might have even been his first screenplay. And after you so, got the
0: gig, how'd your how your friend feel about that? The one who actually went to audition?
1: Yeah, uh, we laughed about it and he was you know, really supportive and and we were such different types. I mean he was a six foot one Irish Catholic uh you know guy and his whole and he was a real bon vivant. I, and he, he passed away not too long afterwards. Uh, and uh a little much too bon vivantness maybe. Yeah. Um but we we you know he was terrifically uh, supportive
0: so as you get ready to start shooting the film is there a sense of oh my gosh i can't believe this you know i'm about to be in a film or is there a sense of oh my gosh i'm going to be in a film what you know well
1: i certainly i certainly knew that i didn't know anything
0: and i i was in an acting class but that
1: i sort of threw that all out in my audition with barry he goes forget about acting I just, just pretend like your guy's having coffee i went well, that's what I do in real life. In fact, my <laughs> act was about guys having coffee. He said, "Yeah, it's just relaxed. I don't want you to act." And uh, so he was able to. And there was no part that my role in the film was not really in the script. He said, "We're just going to find it on the on the set. We're going to play and improvise." Which you know, we would. He just let the cameras roll, and I would throw out this or throw out that, and he would come over and go, "Do a little more of that and less of that, but more of the other thing." And then suddenly, when I saw the movie, I went, "Oh my God!" He not only did he keep it. He cobbled it together that it actually looks like I knew what I was doing. But, you I, know, I totally didn't know what I was doing to the point. I mean, I never knew where, what a camera was. I didn't know. I And to be honest, I kind of I still feel that way. Not that I feel uh, inexperienced, but I feel like it's all kind of new and exciting. You know, <laughs> walking on a set and then you see the magic of like, wow, there's a – hundred people here and this, these people drive the trucks and these people set up the lights and these people do, it's like, this is, it's the circus, man. It's like, and it's, it never, you know, I still feel that way. And I just, I just did this film that I wrote and we shot in Ireland, which is another dream come true. I had written this film because I wanted to make a movie in Ireland and they, and I found this wonderful producer and she put together this great crew and every day I'll go, look at all these people. We're all driving in the same direction. We're all doing our parts. That's how movies get made. And yeah. and it's it's never not fascinating to me uh, how hard it is and how much work goes into making a movie.
0: And they feed you too.
1: And you get a lunch,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. From my uh, uh, one experience as in a press conference scene on It Could Happen to You with Nicolas Cage, I uh, two two days of shooting in the McGraw-Hill building in Midtown Manhattan, and uh, if I were in the movies, I'd weigh about 400 pounds because... There was yeah. <laughs> con- constantly food yeah. around. Yeah, there's a lot of food, but rarely whitefish.
1: Very rarely do they have a whitefish on a set.
0: No, that's yeah,
1: that's, that's uh, shooting. Perhaps you know the Woody Allen, is Finkel movie.
0: Wasn't that the subject of a strike once? Perhaps you know <laughs> yes. the whitefish, the salad whitefish strike? wars. Yes, and so. Um, How do you first – I've read the story about you going down to the corner to get the newspaper for the first review because there was – Diner, there was not – like it was not a groundswell early on. It took some help from apparently some – No, it
1: really was a groundswell. It just sort of aged really well and emerged as one of those movies that was um, impactful for a, a lot of people. Audience people and also filmmakers right. and, and writers. The diner was very unique, but yeah, I, you know, it was all exciting for me. I had never, as I said, never done anything, and it came out it's like, oh my gosh! And and it and it came out sort of reluctantly. The studio didn't know what they had, and they were embarrassed because uh, who was the who was the Pauline Kael, right? F- uh, legendary film critic, saw it and loved it. And put out this wonderful review and said, basically, the studio is crazy if they don't put this out. So they put it out in one theater or two theaters in New York and two in L.A. And then there were lines around the block because it became this sort of very special novelty. And, um, and I lived on 76th Street. And I had this little apartment and there was a newsstand across the street. And I remember I knew the reviews were coming out. And I couldn't. And I took, bought the paper, walked back across to my side of the street, and I, and I had to open the paper. Luckily, I didn't get hit by a car because I wasn't looking. I was reading, and I didn't even make it back onto my side of the curb because I was just, oh my god, there it is! It's in the papers, New York Times, and it says my name, and it's spelled right and everything. And I remember looking down, and I was ankle deep in flowing water. The street cleaners that had just come by, so I, I was going, "This is not pretty, but it is poetic in some way." I mean. <laughs> washed away with some stream of something new is happening to me at least like i think i just walked through some portal into the next phase and this was my baptismal moment
0: is there a notion that now everything is going to be different or or do you understand an ocean
1: or an ocean uh, there's an ocean we have an ocean for sure yeah yeah um was there no i didn't know I. It wasn't like I was, uh, you know, going from starving to feast. I, you know, I, I was enjoying my life. I was, I was living the life, man. I had an apartment that I had paid three hundred and ninety dollars a month for. I was probably making eight hundred dollars a month, you know. And I'm like, wow, this is great. I got money left over, and there's girls, and there's, you know, and staying up late. This is this is pretty great. And I'm twenty three, twenty four. Uh, where am I going? I don't you know, I wasn't, I wasn't itching to change anything. Um, but I certainly felt, felt like, oh, this is very cool. I, and to be honest, I don't know that I knew enough to even know what the next things were. Uh, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to audition for more movies. I just thought this is really cool. I mean, I've, I can do a victory lap right here. You know, I took a gamble, jumped into this comedy world, and now I'm in a movie, and next month I'm on The Tonight Show. Okay.
0: Uh, The Tonight Show, for people of a certain generation, there's the Tonight Show and then there's everything else, and especially the Tonight Show with Johnny. So, your first Tonight Show, uh, what's the lead up to that like?
1: Well, the lead up to that was being turned down from being on the show three or four times. uh you know i'd made some trips out to la and you go up on a cl- on this uh, you know, one of the clubs and you basically audition for johnny's talent coordinator whose sole criteria was would johnny like this comic and if you didn't think johnny would like or if you he didn't think you were funny you said well not you're not ready you're not ready and and i probably wasn't really ready as a, you know i don't know that i had a strong identity as a comic but suddenly because i had this credit And I'm in this film, and the film is getting a bit of heat. And I was a bit of a story because it's like, oh, here's a guy who's like the sixth guy of the movie about five guys. He was a guy who walked, you know, I got it by accident. So there was this little point of interest. I thought, well, this might be an interesting, uh, you know, booking. Although I didn't even sit down. That was the first time I, first and only time I did The Tonight Show that I stood, did stand up. I did my thing, walked off, and that was it.
0: Did you get the? I didn't, did you get
1: the luck? I, I got an okay sign from Johnny, I think. But I, I, I then I didn't, I didn't go back. I uh, wasn't invited back for a couple of years, and then around '86, when Aliens came out, and I came out and I sat on the couch and we just did material, and then something clicked because then Johnny had me on a lot. When I look back, it's kind of striking, and as you say, that was the currency. If you were on Johnny and Johnny liked you, you were, you know, you were gold. And Johnny had me on seems like every six, eight weeks for a few years, uh, I was on a lot, I think I did like twenty five times with him and and I noticed like by the third time, fourth time, I started to loosen up. I wasn't as you know I didn't feel like I had to live only live and die only on my material, like I was having fun with Johnny, and I loosened up, and he loosened up, and that became this wonderful thing and uh, you know I, I don't know if you've seen the show i i wrote uh, created there's Johnny which is about (laughs) it's sort of about the tonight show and takes place at the behind the scenes of the tonight show in 1972 which is just when the tonight show moved to California from New York and became what it really became and um, it was a golden moment in TV and certainly in my life and my high school years was spent you know quietly turning on the TV so my parents didn't know I was up at midnight watching George Collin and Albert Brooks and Steve Martin so, I always wanted to do a show behind that world. So, a buddy of mine, David Stephen Simon, a very talented writer who I had known for years, we had this idea, and we just never, it, it, the time was never right, but G. Johnny was retiring, and the Johnny was ill, and then G. Johnny's gone. And then a few years after that, finally, we, they said, Yeah, let's do it. And so, because we needed the permission of the Carson Estate, Carson Company, because mm-hmm. they gave us the, opened up the archive, So we had full, you know, uh, take our pick of clips. And uh, so I put on all my, so in the show, it's a fictitious world, fictitious characters, but they're filming The Tonight Show. And so I was saying, let's see George Carlin from 72. Okay, he was on six times, eight times. Let's find Steve Martin. And what was striking to me and really impactful was I hadn't seen these clips in 45 years but as I'm watching them, I remembered them vividly and I knew what line was coming because when they first came out, you didn't have a VCR and you couldn't record it and it wasn't streaming and you couldn't watch it on your phone, on the bus, you know, it's like you had to wait and you if you missed it, you missed it. So it was, it was memorable. It was literally appointment television. And for those of us who love comics, you know, I remember literally saying, "Hey, George Collins on Thursday. Okay, let's watch it, and then we'll talk about it Friday." Hey, Albert Brooks is on. You know, so we had our favorites, Rodney Dangerfield. So the show was really a love letter to that era and to Johnny because, John, and we never showed Johnny on the show on the show that we made. There's Johnny because he was sort of godlike. You know, he, backstage, he would just—you'd see a fleeting glimpse of him, his elbow. You know, that's yeah. all I ever saw. I wasn't hanging out with him. It's like, yeah, I don't want to have some actors. And everyone can go, well, he don't look like Johnny Carson. <laughs> was like, yeah, let's not like Johnny Johnny's just a, a presence. He's an elbow. He's a back of a head. Mm. Um, and everybody's scurrying around to make the show as good as they can for Johnny. That was the world that I remembered.
0: You mentioned earlier what your dad said after you come home from college and you're going to you know, do comedy and how he looked at you. Uh, how did your folks look at you after Diner came out? And what did they say?
1: Uh, Yeah, well, you know what, to their credit, I mean, my parents were very supportive and, and you know affectionate and wonderful. And so my father's concern was like, just he couldn't get it at first. Like, it just seems crazy. I can set you up and you can have this business that he created and he didn't get it. And I remember a conversation, he said, it kind of pained him. He said, I don't know, I mean, if I just had any reason to think you'd succeed, and I sort of sarcastically said, what would help you? Would you if I got a letter from David Brenner saying I was good, would that help you? And he went, kinda would, yeah. <laughs> you know, like he just said, like, is my son have any yeah. capabilities? Yeah. Does he have any ability in this world? And I got to meet Brenner years later and I told him that story. He said, Tell your daddy you're doing okay. I said, Thank you. Uh, um, but anyway, to your, to your point um diner was certainly excited so once i made the jump they were very supportive and even you know they come see me and every new gig good gig was celebrated and joined with them and so they were excited when i got the movie but more significantly the diner led to tonight show and that was the currency that he really could understand so my parents could then go yeah my son is on the johnny carson show it wasn't the tonight show it was the johnny it was like you're on with johnny And and uh, in fact, the second time I went on the Tonight Show, I told the story to Johnny, and it didn't go over well with Johnny. I said, "Yeah." He said, "How are your parents? Must be happy." I said, "Yeah, you know." And the truth was, I got after the first show, I called my parents, and and my dad goes, "Yeah." I said, "Dad, you're pretty good, huh?" And my dad goes, "Yeah, Johnny seemed to like you." (laughs) Not you though, (laughs) you know. he wasn't saying i didn't like he was just going hey you passed you know it seemed really clear that johnny liked you but that's what he needed to see and in fairness the the it was the gold standard if you told you know you're an up-and-coming comic and you're playing clubs and you're doing okay you sit on a plane next to somebody what do you do i'm a comic first question you've been on the tonight show because if you haven't you're not
0: a comic right
1: It really was that clear, a a defining moment. If you haven't, you're lucky you can
0: stay on the plane for that matter. Yes,
1: (laughs) exactly. So that was for my parents, that was really currency. And, and, you know, and it was very sweet. He was, you know, they would watch every time, even if it was on a repeat. I go, wait a minute, you already recorded the original. You don't have to record (laughs) the rerun. But, you know, he would, they were very proud. and, 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 and my dad passed in 89. So he got to see, you know, I, I had my two dads. I had a TV show. Right. And so he, I think, was resting comfortably in the fact that I wasn't going to starve.
0: Did you guys, growing up as a family, have a diner or a coffee shop that was the place to go to? Or were those kind of conversations, not just with your friends, but with your family, was there a, oh, I'm going to try and one-up uh, dad? Or No, you
1: know what? It's funny. It wasn't... I think every... I remember a friend of mine from college came to (laughs) came in came into New York. I forgot why, but anyway, stayed with us. And uh, and she was from like an upstate small town, upstate New York. Never been to New York, (laughs) and spent you know having breakfast in our house. And she went, so everybody's funny in New York. (laughs) I guess (laughs) I think you know because I didn't stand out in my family. Everybody was funny. It was it was a lot of chaos, a lot of movement, a lot of. you know, kinetic energy and, and, uh, food sharing and forks, you know, and plates moving. It wasn't, it wasn't a Norman Rockwell painting. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, uh, the New York version.
0: So throughout your career and all the success and mad about you and Kaminsky and the films, uh, Still, I make
1: time for you. Is that what you're saying? Yeah.
0: That's, yes. Uh, all right. I don't even have to ask a question then apparently. Uh, how important are those early years? Either growing up in Town or those years when you're, you know, those summers when you're going up a couple of times or you're when very you're, when you had you're had a, very Stytown oriented. Yeah. Is this, is this is a retrospect for Stuyvesant Town Gazette? That's what's happening. That's right? the moneymaker that we're trying to do here. Um, when, I mean, you know, those years, you know, when you're doing it uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, is there something, some thread from those years that you've kept? What what impact do they have on the work that you're doing right now? Well,
1: I, you know, I've, for good or for bad, I've always been of a mindset to connect the dots. So, you know, I never feel like I'm here. I feel like I'm here connected to all the steps that led up to here. You know, and I I think in all walks Like with my wife, we've been together. Uh, we met 40 years ago. We've been married for 34 years. And we'll often joke or or even if we're not sharing moment, I will in my head go back to, how did we get here? <laughs> um, you know, no, and I don't mean in a bad way, but I mean like, so, you know, or, you know, in a typical day of marriage, you might have a silly friction and someday the friction gets a little heated and you, and you go, wait a second. And I used to have this, I, like, this outlook about my parents too. How, where did this start? Let's go back to where this began. It's like, Oh, we, in my case, like, I remember, meeting her at a comedy club. It's like, oh, my God, she's really beautiful. And, oh, boy, there's a spark here. And then we liked each other. So we saw each other again. And then we dated. And then we, you know, and it, and it escalated. And that's how we got here. You know, we didn't used to have kids. We didn't used to, you know. So not um, – it just sort of gives me context. But I remember this movie that I wrote um, that with, for Peter Falk twenty fifteen years ago, whatever it was, called The Thing About My Folks. Was really well, it was written because I wanted to make a movie with Peter Falk, where he played my father. That was the that was the point of origin. But what it became was me trying to understand my parents' relationship because I only saw the later years. I saw I'm the last of four kids, so I saw them as just you know tired. You know, right. it was like it wasn't a passionate romance. They were affectionate and loving and supportive, but like they seem a little just over each other. You know, just and I think. It didn't start that way, and I and so I had to track it back. So my mom audition, audition, interviewed for a job as a secretary office worker in my dad's business when it was just for me. And so I would kind of mine the story from her. My dad was gone already when I was writing it, but I would try and get from her. So what happened? So he, well, he was really handsome, and uh, he lived in Brooklyn, and I lived in Brooklyn, and he drove me home. I go, all right, so now I can – so it, it helped me to realize, okay – people in their 60s didn't start in their 60s they used to be funny. You know, and I and, I, and I laugh and I look at my kids now and I go, yeah, they're only going to know me as now. And it's like, and but it's funny because I, I don't pretend that I'm younger or, you know, can try to fool myself that I'm 20 or 30. But I look at my 22-year-old and my 27-year-old and go, I remember that pretty clearly. So, you know, when my when they're pushing back on me and resisting, I go, I have two thoughts: like, ouch, but go ahead. Then you gotta. That's yeah. your job. You're 22. Your job. You know, I used to say my analogy for parenting is like, you know, you want to push your kid higher up the ladder, and you want it to get in every way more successful, more content, more rounded, you know, in every way you want them to be better than you. So you push them up the ladder, but sometimes to get there, their foot will they will have to push off your eye and you go, ow, ow, that hurts, but I'm pushing them up. And there are a lot of those moments where I go, oh boy, I, I totally get why you don't want to come with me to this thing. It would be nice if you did, but yeah, I get it. I get it. You, All right, go hang out with your buddies. I'll go to this thing myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's
0: an old comedy term, I believe. Yes, it is. So um, this is the official end of the interview. But I would like to say that S.L. Price, Scott Price, is a friend of mine, the guy who wrote the article in Vanity Fair 10 years ago about, about <gasps> what diner means. Oh, and, gosh, yeah. And uh, Scott just knocked it out of the park. And um, it, uh, I, I, I like to think, along with a lot of your other work, but that movie I, I liken to great music in that it elates us in good times and it sustains us during hard times.
1: Wow! Wow.
0: by Michigan, please. Uh, that a... Feel free. Yeah. That, that's a freebie. That's a freebie. Yeah, you know, that's very sweet. No. Yeah, you know we had
1: a uh, we had an event out here in L.A. Um, commemorating the 40th anniversary of Diner. <laughs> we all went what? And you know, a few of us got together, Kevin Bacon and. Tim Daly and Steve Boomer, we all went out to dinner beforehand and we looked at each other and we were remembering these stories, Talk about coming you know, knowing where you came from, so that was for all of us, our first big thing and we were remembering all these moments and funny things, like, and one of us I think it was Kevin said, have you noticed when you get on a set now, you're the oldest person there is? (laughs) Yes When did that happen? So it does does help to uh, remember and, and connect those dots well, it's, but anyway, pleasure talking to you. I hope in Town uh, raises some funds off of this pledge drive of yours. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'll tell Billy you said hello.
0: Please do. And, uh, uh, you know, if you, I don't know if you get to New York, but if you, the Barney Greengrass Group, there's always a chair open for you if you'd like.
1: Uh, good to know. All right. Keep a, ta- keep a table.
0: All right. Thanks. Paul Reiser. He's back on the road doing stand-up in 2023 for what he calls his Big Font Tour. All information is at paulreiser.com. Before the cheering started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing? That's me as well. No extra charge. Thank you as always to editor Lou Pellegrino. I'm excited about the new year, including episodes with another comedy great, Robert Klein, writer Jane Green, ESPN's Jeremy Schapp, environmental and real estate changemaker Majora Carter, and baseball broadcaster Susan Waldman. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks, as always, for joining us on the journey.